Good, good. Open with me to Genesis chapter 29, and what we read here reminds me of Galatians 6-7, which includes not only a threat, but a promise, and that is, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. And then the promise is, if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, the threat is, you'll reap corruption or destruction. Well, that's what we find here. We really find both in the text here in Genesis chapter 29, which is the story of how Jacob left his home at Beersheba and got to Haran and married, uh, well, got more than what he bargained for. Married Rachel and married Leah, but not in that order. It's not what he expected and uh, ended up suffering uh, himself because of some things that took place there. Uh, the truth is, is that we do reap what we sow, but that's not only the case. We also reap what others sow. We stand on other people's shoulders, and so the decisions we make are terribly, terribly, terribly important. In fact, uh, as we follow the Lord and know Christ, and as we celebrate this week and this weekend, we really get to reap what someone else has sown. We get to reap what Jesus Christ has sown. And that's the message of uh, the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. God circumvents, interferes, interrupts the uh, law of the harvest in our lives and cuts off the consequences, the eternal consequences of our sin and injects instead the eternal consequences of Jesus' obedience. And so we get into that stream. And that's the good news of the gospel of Christ. Here in Genesis chapter 29, Jacob ends up reaping in a similar way. Abraham has been faithful. Isaac has passed on the promise and transferred that to uh, one of the most uh, scoundrel-like characters in the entire Bible, Jacob, his son. And this is what we find beginning in verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so he said, is, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, look, it's still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water your sheep and go feed them. But they said, eh, we can't till all the flocks are gathered together and they've rolled the stone from the well's mouth, then water the sheep. What's happening here is he's saying, hurry up and water your sheep and scram. I want to be with this girl. That's exactly what's happening. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, watered the flock of Laban, his, uh, Laban, his uh, mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Well, there are several things that are um, uh, harvested here, that are reaped here from the sowing of Abraham and Isaac 
and even Jacob. And one happens to be direction. In verses 1 through 9, we find some very precise and very fortunate locations that Jacob ends up finding. He's left Beersheba. He's never been away from home. He goes to Haran where his family told him without the benefit of GPS. He's looking for Laban's family without the benefit of an address or a picture or any kind of contact information, and he happens to find it right there at a very opportune time, and that is when the shepherds watered their sheep. They had certain times of the day when they would do so at a well or other places, and he just happened to get to Haran, and he just happened to get to a well, and he just happened to get to a well where there were other shepherds who knew Laban and his family, and he just happened to arrive at the time when they were watering their sheep, and he just happened to arrive at the time when a member of Laban's family showed up. That's what happened in the text. God promised to bless him and be with him in the previous chapter, and he was every step of the way. So there is some precision that takes place here, some precise guidance. And listen to me carefully. God has a will for you and for me. He's got a will about who he wants us to, who we want singles to marry. He's got a will for where he wants us to work and what location we are to take. He's got a will for the questions we ask him, for the decisions that we've got to make. God is very precise in his direction. I don't think he cares really what kind of what color of socks you wear in the morning. I think that's silly, but and not to go that far, but on the important issues of life, God has a will for every one of us, and when it needs to be, it is just as precise as it needs to be. And he's promised to guide. Now let me tell you why he's going to do that. He's going to do that because Jesus earned that for you at the cross. So never doubt God. God does not play hide and go seek with his will. He doesn't do it. He's a father. He's a father. And if you come ask him, well, let me ask you this. Do you think for a moment if my children were to come to me and say, Daddy, I want to know what you want me to do in this situation, that I'm going to withhold direction from them? Oh, goodness, no. I'm thrilled that they want to do what I want them to do. And that's the same way God ends up doing. And we can talk more about that later uh, in, into some more detail about the difference between a call of God and God's wisdom. There, there is a difference, but he guides us by both. But let's move on to the second thing that Jacob reaped. That happened to be, and this was uh, disappointing to him at first, but it was actually good for the whole wide world and the kingdom. And the second thing he reaped happened to be denials. He reaped direction, and then he reaped denials. In verses 8 through 28, we find Jacob's marriage. We find his marriage. Laban comes to him and says, um, uh, you're, you're working for me, but you can't work for no wages. What, what do you want? What are your wages? He says, I want to marry your youngest daughter, Rachel. And he says, well, you don't have a dowry with you. So give me seven years. That, that'll be about the equivalent. He says, I'll do it. And so he marries, or excuse me, he works for seven years. And uh, at the end of it, there's a wedding ceremony. And he is to marry, uh, he expects to marry Rachel. But uh, what uh, happened instead is that the father, Laban, gave away Leah 
Now, how in the world did Jacob miss this? Well, it was not unusual for the bride to be completely covered in those days. And he took advantage of that. Laban did. And uh, in the evening when they consummated their marriage, I don't know why Jacob missed this. Perhaps Leah borrowed some of Rachel's clothing. I, I don't know. But in the morning, it happens to be not Rachel. It happens to be Leah that he ended up marrying. And he's outraged. And he says, what in the world have you done for me? He said, well, there's, there's just one thing I didn't tell you. Uh, here, we don't marry off the youngest daughter before the oldest daughter. Now, that's perfectly fine where we are, but that wasn't the custom in that day. So Jacob was somewhat naive. He should have figured that out. Uh, he'd been there a while. He could have learned. It's not the first marriage to take place in seven years, and, uh, or it's unlikely that it was. And uh, as a result, he ends up marrying Leah. Now, um, he says, okay, what do I have to do to marry Rachel? So he ends up being, he ends up being the very first of the patriarchs to engage in polygamy. Abraham did not engage in polygamy. Noah didn't. Adam didn't. Isaac didn't. Jacob did. And that's what happened. And Laban says to him, well, you can marry Rachel and Leah and keep Leah if you will, marry, if you will work for me an additional seven years. And he did. He worked for an additional seven years, and uh, in a week after honoring Leah as his first wife, he ended up mar marrying Rachel. So I don't know how in the world a fellow pulls this off, but in the space of eight days, he's got two wives. That's what happened here in the text. Now, I want to make several points about this. Jacob, Jacob fell into love with Rachel foolishly and impulsively. Foolishly and impulsively. I mean, just as quick as the story can progress, he falls in love with Rachel. There's the wedding, uh, the shock of marrying Leah, the customs of the day. He is dismayed. Now, some people here and some people in other places may be uh, entirely dismayed that Jacob ended up marrying Leah instead of the girl he wanted. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you ought to be more dismayed that he, he, that he fell in love so recklessly and carelessly with Rachel. That was very foolish. That was very silly. And that's what takes place in the uh, text. You see, Rachel really was not a very godly woman. After seven years of marriage, 14 years of exposure to Jacob, seven years of marriage to Jacob, in chapter 31 when they leave and Laban hunts them down, he, uh, uh, the, the, the text reveals that Rachel has stolen the pagan idols of her father. She is a pagan. She is not right with God. She ignites an enormous controversy over childbearing with her sister. She is not a godly woman at all. And what is shown in the text is just how grossly immature she is. Well, that's the first thing. He foolishly and carelessly fell in love with Rachel. The second thing I want to say about this is that Leah was very godly. Look at verses 31 through 35. Uh, they, uh, Leah uh, knows that she's not loved primarily and firstly by Jacob, that Rachel is. And look what it says in verse 31. And this is kind of, kind of sad, but here Leah takes her problems to the Lord. And look what the text says. When the Lord saw 
that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked at my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. So she expects and anticipates the mercy of God. The birth of her son turns her thoughts to the mercy of God. And that is with Reuben. Then verse 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved, he's therefore given me this son also. So she, on a second time, turns her thoughts to the Lord. In other words, the vice grip of a loveless marriage squeezes her and what comes out is godliness and faith. And she named him Simeon. Then verse 34. She conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Oh, let's go on. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Or in Hebrew, uh, hallelujah. I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Now, Reuben and Simeon uh, messed up in life. However, that did not have global implications. But then the third son is Levi. Levi. Well, what does Levi become in the next book of the Bible? Who is it that comes from the tribe of Levi that is so prominent in Exodus and the balance of the Old Testament and prominent even today? His name is Moses. So Leah is the great-grandmother of Moses and therefore Aaron. Oh, and that's not all. She's the great-grandmother of Zacharias who appears in Luke chapter 1 who happens to be the father of none other than John the Baptist, whom Jesus said is the greatest man born of a woman. That's Leah. That's Leah. But that's not all. Her fourth son is who? Judah. She gives birth to Judah. And Judah, who does he become in the Old Testament? Eventually, by around 900 B.C. or so, give or take a few decades, the, the Judah has become King David and then Solomon and all the kings that sat on the throne of Jerusalem. And eventually Judah becomes not only David and Solomon and the rest of those kings, David becomes Mary. Uh, David is the great, uh, great uh, great-grandfather of Mary who gives birth to Jesus. So it is through Leah and the birth of her sons that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is eventually realized. That a seed shall be born of a woman who shall crush the head of the serpent. It is clear from the biblical text, even without stating it, that it was God's will for Jacob to marry Leah. But the way it happened is that Laban ended up deceiving Jacob over it. That's exactly how it happened. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world does God use unrighteous people? Well, you see it demonstrated every day. When we look in the mirror, when we attend church, God is using sinners. And I appreciate Michael quoting 1 Timothy 1.12 this evening. God's been merciful to me in that he's considered me faithful, putting me into the ministry. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, God hits a lot of straight licks with a crooked stick. And folks, there are a lot of crooked people in Genesis 29 and 30. In fact, they are all over the biblical text. So God used Laban and his manipulation to correct the direction of Jacob's life. And he ended up using Rachel too and her foolishness and uh, her motherhood because through Rachel came Benjamin who provided Israel the first king of, uh, of their existence and Saul who eventually would provide the apostle Paul and provided Joseph. God hit straight licks with crooked sticks because there aren't any straight ones, none whatsoever. And so that's the second thing that Jacob ends up uh, reaping or denials. But the third thing is that he ends up reaping deception as well. And that's verses 15 to 30. Um, he ends up reaping tremendous uh, deception. Um, I, I want to point this out, that Jacob reaped deception with his father and Leah's father reaped deception with Jacob. Is that not delicious irony? One father gets deceived and the other one ends up deceiving the same fellow that was involved in, in both. Jacob is the younger who worked with his mother to deceive his father. Leah is the older who worked with her father to deceive Jacob. Thank God, God ruled over it all. And uh, despite the conflict it produced in this family, he reigned as Lord of all. It just reminds me of Romans 6.19 in the New American Standard where it says sin results in more sin. And that's what you have here. A lot of chaos taking place in this family. We reap what we sow and sometimes we reap what others have sown. I remember back in the summer of 1988, someone offered me a good bit of money uh, to do uh, a Ph.D., and uh, it would get me through that, and I wouldn't have to work during that time. Uh, and uh, what I was to, and this was at the beginning of the summer of '88. I was doing some youth camps that summer, and I was to come back at the end of the summer and pick up a check. And I was asked by the person offering it, um, "What, um, what, what are you going to do with the check? I mean, it's going to be a few years before you start PhD work. What are you going to do?" And I said, well, I will probably give it to so-and-so and let this person invest it. I get back at the end of the summer, and there's no check. I'm told there's no money. And I'm lied to as to why that's the case. I won't go into detail, but I was lied to. As it turned out, I worked, worked full-time doing my Ph.D. and traveled a bunch and wore myself slap out. Now, if you're not from the southern United States, you may not know what it means to wear yourself slap out. I'm really not sure what it means either, but it means tired. Or as my granddaddy would say, tired. That's what he would say. Uh, but it, those were good years, and God blessed us, and God took care of us. But I have to tell you, I'm still disappointed to this day for that. Uh, I um, uh, worked full-time, kept Sherry Michelle at home, most of the time, with the exception of a few interpreting assignments, but it really, really, really would have helped for that person to come through and keep his uh, uh, keep keep her promise in uh, providing that, uh, because that's the time we discovered uh, about Jonathan's handicaps and had a second child on the way, had a third child, and um, uh, it was it was a big challenge. 
really was. The, the uh, thing I discovered, I told the fellow that I was going to invest the money with about the experience. I was close to him, and I was really disappointed. And he said, David, you need to know what happened. Uh, and he explained to me what happened. Some 15 or 20 years before, uh, the two of them had had a falling out. And they battled one another. And he was convinced that... Uh, this person's dislike for him meant there was no way I was ever going to see the money at all. The two of them battled 20 years before, uh, almost around the time of my birth, uh, the year I was born, and it was still lingering to that day, and I had to pay for it because they hadn't fixed the problem in their life and relationship. Well, the Lord blessed us and got through, and God hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. We reap what we sow, we also reap what others sow, and folks, we are now sowing what others are going to reap one day. Now, that's applicable to several areas. Let me be real quick. Number one, that's applicable to prayer. You're going to reap what you sow in prayer. And you know what? That's really good news. That is. The Lord says in Jeremiah 33:3, Call unto me, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I've got that stenciled or uh, put up on a wall near a prayer altar of mine. And I point to that and say, God, you said that. So here I come. I'm coming with a request. And I want to reap what I sow in prayer. But that's not all. That's also true when it comes to our witness, telling other people the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to reap what we sow. If we do not sow gospel seed, we will not reap it either. I've had the experience Michael has had many places where I've gone to preach and I've preached my heart out. I've prayed. The church has prayed. But they have not witnessed or invited people to come. And so you know what? God doesn't save saints or seats. Okay? Saint, uh, seats can't be saved. Saints are already. And uh, that's what happens. And so we reap what we sow with our witness. Now, through the years, we've heard people say, that 80% of Christians in America and Canada came to Christ before the age of 18. Well, that's probably true. That's because no one's witnessing to adults. The notion is, is that adult ministry doesn't work. And I've got to say, most of my ministry in life, we've won young adults to Christ. We've seen as many young adults come to Jesus as children and as teenagers because we got after and started witnessing to adults. But that's true in the third area as well, and that's faith. Turn with me real quickly to Psalms 132, and I want to encourage your heart with this text. Um, anytime I read of David in the Scripture, I think of David, and I keep it in context, but I oftentimes find hints in the biblical text that I'm supposed to think about Jesus and David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. And I want you to see what it says in Psalms 132, verse 1. Lord, remember David and his afflictions. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I'll not go into the chamber of my house, verse 5, until I find a place for the Lord and a dwelling place of the mighty one of Jacob. I'm not sleeping till I find a place for us to worship God. And I think that had to do with his desire to build the temple. I suspect it did. He was zealous for doing that. God wouldn't let him. He had to correct his path. And he'll correct ours if we go astray, even in a good thing. And uh, instead, he put his zeal to gathering the materials, like Israel is doing today, 
to gathering the materials for someone else to build the temple. And the psalmist cries and says, Lord, remember that. Remember David's merits and then do for me what I request in verse 10. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. God, I need your pleasure. I need to know of your approval. I need you to come through and vindicate me, not on the basis of my merit, but because of David. Would you transfer David's, would you transfer the merit of David's zeal? Would you transfer the merit of David's desire, of his, uh, the fact that he was a man after your own heart? Would you transfer that to me? For David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how we seek the Lord when we trust him. Oh God, and this is what I think when I read Psalms 132. Lord, for your servant Jesus' sake, do not turn me away. For his sake, Lord God, remember his wounds. Re remember his obedience. Remember how much he pleased you. Remember that he saved me and placed me in him. And so the favor and the love and the joy that you have in Jesus Christ has now been transferred to me. Oh God, don't waste a bit of it. I've got to have you. I need more of you. I need you to come through in this way. When you trust God, that's what God will do. You and I then can reap what Jesus Christ has sown. And I didn't make that up. That's right here in the Bible all the way through. He transfers all that grace to us. Hey, we got good news to tell this week and weekend, don't we? We've got a lot to say. In fact, we've got the best message that has ever been given because it's delivered from heaven, all wrapped in the merits of Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you please make us zealous for that, happy in it and full of joy.